we have a lot to cover tonight so just one quick thing a new story out of buffalo new york a recent story i think from mid-august the buffalo central terminal train station 17-story office building built in 1929 and abandoned in 1979 allegedly haunted of course popular destination for ghost hunters huh A 35-year-old woman, curious if the rumors were true, decided she wanted to investigate. While walking across the roof of one of the substations, the roof gave way and she fell 15 to 20 feet. Jeez. The man she was with said he turned his back for two seconds and she was gone. And he could hear her yelling and screaming. Luckily, she survived with just a broken shoulder blade four broken ribs, and a punctured lung. She spoke out later to warn people to stay out that the next person might not be as lucky, but I would say just be careful out there, people. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is become the ghost of a ghost hunter. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. Haven't heard that one yet. I'm sure it's out there. (laughs) Yeah. I think just don't go to old buildings and going on the rooftop. Yeah. Unless you know it's stable. (laughs) Stay on the floor. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, what do you have tonight? Tonight, I have a 14-year-old that started to test out poisons on his family in 1961. Oh, that's bizarre. Never heard this one before. Yeah. Graham Frederick Young was born in North London on September 7, 1947, to Fred and Bessie Young. During his mother's pregnancy, she developed pleurisy and died of tuberculosis three months after giving birth to him. Fred Young was devastated, and Graham was put into the care of his Aunt Winnie, while his older sister, Winifred, was taken in by their grandparents. Graham spent the first two years of his life with his aunt and her husband, Jack, and became very close to them. In 1950, his father remarried and reunited the family again with his new wife, Molly. Graham showed visible signs of distress after being separated from his aunt. When Graham started to read, he would gravitate more towards nonfiction accounts of murders. Dr. Crippen, a man that was hanged in 1910 for killing his wife, was favorited by Graham. When he reached his teens, he had developed an unhealthy fascination with Adolf Hitler and took to wearing swastikas, praising the virtues of a, quote, misunderstood Hitler, end quote, to anyone who would listen. He also read widely on the occult, claiming knowledge of Wiccans and local covens, trying to involve local children in bizarre occult ceremonies, which involves sacrificing a cat on one occasion. His only interests academically were chemistry, forensic science, and toxicology. 
His father supported his interests and bought Graham a chemistry set, which had his attention for hours at a time. By the age of 13, Graham's extensive knowledge of toxicology gave him the opportunity to convince local chemists that he was in fact 17, and he acquired a dangerous quantity of the poisons antimony, digitalis, and arsenic for study purposes, as well as quantities of the heavy metal thallium. Well, that's concerning. Yeah. Well, it's concerning that he convinced him that he was 17 and that's somehow an old enough age to get that stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, that you could even get it at 17. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also find it interesting. I was thinking about that time period and how difficult it must have been to find information about the things that he was interested in as far as murders and stuff. Yeah. It's not like today where you can just go Google and find just about anything you want. Well, like news articles and stuff. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how easy it was to look at past news articles back then. Or if he spent a lot of time in the library. Yeah. Eager to put his knowledge of poisons to the test, his first victim was a fellow science student, Christopher Williams. Christopher suffered an extended period of vomiting, painful cramps, and headaches. The cocktail of poisons left medical experts baffled. Christopher was lucky to survive, which was likely because Graham couldn't fully monitor the illness of his victim when he was sick at home. He decided to focus on a group to whom he had an unlimited access to, which was his family. When the family began to show signs of poisoning during the early part of 1961, Graham's father initially suspected that he might have been unintentionally harming the family by the careless use of his chemistry set at home. There wasn't any suspicion of intentional poisoning, especially since Graham had also been ill on a number of occasions. It is still unclear whether this was to avoid detection, if it was thorough scientific interest in his own reaction, or just carelessness of exactly which teacups he had poisoned. Well, I can't imagine poisoning myself just to see what happens. Yeah. That's bizarre. <laughs> but I guess if you're in the mindset. Yeah. I don't know. And the mixing up the teacups would suck. Yeah, but that wouldn't really surprise me with how young you seem to have been. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, if it's like if you're not sure, then just don't drink the tea. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Of course, he could have been sure but then was wrong. That's true, yeah. When Graham's elder sister, Winifred, was found by doctors to have been poisoned by Belladonna in November of 1961, their father again suspected him, but took no action. Molly Young, his stepmother, became the focus of Graham's poisoning. She gradually became more ill until finally on April 21st, 1962, she was found by her husband moving around in agony in the back garden of their home. She was rushed to the hospital where she died later that night. Her cause of death was determined as a prolapse of a spinal bone, and she was cremated, not surprisingly, at Graham's suggestion. <laughs> so the son suggests, hey, maybe you should cremate her. Yeah. And the dad's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, going back, though... 
They knew she was poisoned by a certain substance, which he had. Yeah. And they only suspected that he might have poisoned them. Yeah. I would be like, you know, get these chemicals out of the house at the very least. Well, especially at the part where the dad thought maybe it was unintentionally because of careless use. Yeah. And then say, well, you know, get all this stuff out of here. Yeah. Nope. That's not what happened. (laughs) Unfortunately. It was later discovered that she had developed a tolerance to the antimony, which Graham was slowly poisoning her with. And he switched to thallium the night before her death to speed up the process. There were also reports of nausea and vomiting attacks at her funeral. Oh, my God. (laughs) So was he experimenting on them or was he actually trying to kill them without suspicion? Experimenting. Wow. Following Molly's death, Fred's attack of vomiting and cramping became more frequent and severe. He was also admitted to the hospital where he was diagnosed with antimony poisoning. Luckily, he survived his son's experimentation, but he could not face his son's responsibility. Graham's school chemistry teacher contacted the police when he discovered poisons and copious material about poisoners in Graham's school desk. (laughs) They're just now getting suspicious? Yeah. Well, I think after his father found out he was being poisoned, he just wanted nothing to do with. I'm just amazed it took him that long to take action on it or not seriously suspect him. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's just a kid. I don't think you want to expect a kid. I guess kind of blind to it. I suppose if parents are kind of oblivious to their kid's interests. Yeah. You know, not really knowing that he had this fascination with death yeah, and murder. I don't know. I can understand the parents not knowing part. Yeah. But knowing that he has all these chemicals that he's playing around with and everybody in the house keeps getting sick, kind of got to put two and two together. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Graham was sent to a police psychiatrist where his knowledge of poisons soon became apparent and he was arrested on May 23, 1962. He admitted the poisoning of his father, sister, and school friend, but no murder charges were brought against him for the murder of his stepmother, as any evidence had been destroyed at the time of cremation. Well, I guess smart on his part for suggesting she be cremated. Yeah, it's kind of scary that he was so young and... Thinking that far ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Only at the age of 14, he was committed to Broadmoor Maximum Security Hospital, the youngest inmate since 1885, for a minimum period of 15 years. Wow, that's crazy. I was, I was thinking, I guess, lesson learned, don't give your kids chemistry sets. Yeah. Incarceration barely dampened his enthusiasm for experimentation. And within weeks, there was a death of an inmate named John, poisoned by cyanide. Where the hell did he get cyanide? Graham claimed to have extracted cyanide from laurel bush leaves, but his confession was not taken seriously and John's death was recorded as suicide. Really? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Now that's bizarre. Is it, though? (laughs) 
bizarre that they didn't take his confession seriously. Yeah. Wouldn't you think they would say, okay, well, show us how you did it. <laughs> and then if he could do it, then they know it's true. Well, how the heck is he that young and knowing how to do that? I don't know, a little genius. Murderous genius. Yeah. Staff and inmates' drinks were found to have been tampered with, including the introduction of an abrasive sodium compound, commonly called sugar soap, used for preparing painted walls into a tea urn that could have caused mass poisoning had it not been discovered. Geez, at what point are they going to say, you know, maybe we should lock this guy up? He is locked up. Well, he obviously has freedoms in a mental institution, right? That's true. Put him in a cell. <laughs> Get him away from other people's food and drinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I don't understand how he has access to foods and drinks. Can you imagine these days someone like that working at a fast food restaurant? Mm, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> don't eat out. Yes. <laughs> he continuously read about poisoning, but kept his obsession pretty well hidden when authorities made it clear that appearing less obsessed would speed up his release. <laughs> By late 1960s, Graham's doctors seemed oblivious to his continued fascination and recommended in June 1970, that he be released as he had been, by their words, cured. <laughs> Assuming they missed the boat on that one. Yes. He celebrated by telling a psychiatric nurse that he intended to kill one person for every year he had been in Broadmoor. The comment was recorded on his file, but was never taken into consideration for the decision to release him. Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. At this point, I'm not really that surprised. I guess, but wow. When Graham was released on February 4th, 1971, at 23 years old, he went to stay in a hostel but had contact with his sister, Winifred, who had moved following her marriage. Despite having been poisoned by him, she was more forgiving than her father, who initially wanted nothing to do with his son. Can't say I blame him? I don't blame him either. I wonder if she was more forgiving. I'm not exactly sure how much older she was from him, mm -hmm. but I wonder if she was more forgiving because she was around the same age, like younger and kind of naive. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. She was concerned by his fixation with his crimes as he took great delight in visiting the scenes of his past crimes. Warning signs. Yep. He made trips to London where he stocked up on the antimony, thallium, and other poisons required for his experiments. And a fellow hostel resident, 34-year-old Trevor Sparks, was soon experiencing cramps and sickness. Another man he befriended experienced such agony that he took his own life, although no connection to Graham was established at the time. Wow, this guy is scary. Yeah. Well, he warned the nurse. Yes, he did. And they didn't listen. Nope. Graham found work as a storeman at John Hadland Laboratories, which was a photographic supply firm. His new employers were aware of his Broadmoor stay, but not his history as a poisoner. I think that would be something they would look into. Yeah. 
His willingness to make tea and coffee for his coworkers raised no concern. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, they didn't know. Yeah. When Graham's boss, 59-year-old named Bob, began to experience severe cramps and dizziness, it was attributed to a virus known locally as the Bovingdon bug. Other Hadland workers complained of similar cramps, but none were ever as severe as Bob's, who always seemed to recover when off work ill, but instantly became sicker than ever on his return to work. Well, yeah, I guess if they didn't know, yeah, if they would have only known. He was eventually admitted to the hospital where he died on July 7th, 1971, and his cause of death was recorded as pneumonia. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. In September 1971, 60-year-old Fred Biggs began to suffer similar symptoms to Bob, and more people began to take time off at Hadlin, with employees suffering a variety of unusual and debilitating ailments, including the usual cramps and hair loss. Hair loss? Yes. Oh my God. What was he giving them? Jesus. There was suspicion of it being water contamination, radioactive fallout, and leakage of the chemicals used at the firm itself. Fred was eventually admitted to the London Hospital for Nervous Diseases, but died on November 19, 1971. It took a lot of time to die, which made Graham frustrated to which he had recorded in his diary. Why was he frustrated it took him so long to die? Because it was all experimentation for him. Oh, he was looking for something a little quicker? But he was poisoning them slowly over time. Yeah. Hmm. Bizarre. This second death raised concerns within the firm. Around 70 employees had recorded similar symptoms, and there were fears for personal safety. The doctor on site tried to reassure staff by insisting that health and safety rules were being strictly adhered to. Graham challenged him in front of colleagues, quizzing him on why thallium poisoning had not been considered as a cause, considering that it was used in the photographic process. I I don't even know what to say about that as far as him coaxing them along as far as what might have happened. Yeah. The doctor was surprised at the in-depth toxicological knowledge and brought it to the attention of management, who then alerted the police. So they had their concerns. I'm assuming that the police were already involved at that point before they suspected him. I would imagine that would be protocol. I'm just surprised nobody did a background check on the employees to see if anything came up. Yeah, Especially when you know one of them spent time in a mental institute. Well, I wonder if it was, I don't know how they did it back then, but I wonder if it had anything to do that he was a minor. So it was like closed information. Yeah, could be, yeah. The thallium poisoning was revealed. Graham's poison conviction was soon discovered as were his collection of poisons and meticulous diaries recording dosages administered to individuals and their reactions to the dosage over time. Well, that's damning evidence. Yeah. He was arrested on November 21st, 1971. A quantity of thallium was found on his person. 
He admitted to the poisonings but refused to sign a written admission of guilt. Well, at that point, did they really need his admission? I don't think so. Yeah. I would hope not. Graham's trial began on June 19, 1972, and he was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and two counts of administering poison. He pled not guilty and seemed pretty confident that he would be cleared. He loved the media hype that surrounded his trial and would try his best to appear sinister in an attempt to unnerve the jury and assembled gallery. So what was the plan? Scare the jury into letting him go? <laughs> I have no idea. I think it was just all for the media. Yeah. Hmm. He really didn't like the nickname the teacup poisoner that the media gave him. He felt it belittled his skill and knowledge. Instead, he felt being referred to as world poisoner was more appropriate. Oh, wow. (laughs) But he is known as the teacup poisoner still. Yeah, I could see somebody with that disturbed mind being a little upset with that title. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But world poisoner? No offense, that sounds really stupid. Yeah, that's a little (laughs) boasty there. (laughs) Well, not only stupid, right, but a little little fool for yourself there. Yeah. He didn't consider the advances that were made in forensic science since the death of his stepmother and how the list of the effects of his poisons in the diary would affect the jury's decision. He was found guilty on all charges on June 29, 1972, receiving four life sentences. So is he still alive today? No. He didn't die of poisoning, did he? <laughs> I will get to that. Okay. <laughs> when the jury was informed of his previous conviction and his release as a cured mental patient, only months before the crimes took place, they recommended an urgent review of the law regarding the public sale of poisons. The Home Secretary also announced an immediate review of the control, treatment, assessment, and release of mentally unstable prisoners, even though Graham had been regarded as legally sane during his trial. Really, 70s, and they're then just thinking about maybe we should control the accessibility to dangerous chemicals? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Whenever asked whether he felt any remorse over his killings, he would reply with, quote, what I feel is the emptiness of my soul, end quote. Graham was incarcerated at the maximum security Parkhurst prison on the Isle of Wight, the home of Britain's most serious criminals, usually reserved for those with severe mental conditions. He befriended Moore's murder. Ian Brady, who became infatuated with the 24-year-old Graham, although the attraction was not reciprocated. Brady described Graham as excited only by power, clinical experimentation, observation, and death. They spent considerable amount of time together playing chess and bonding over their fascination with Nazi Germany. I was thinking the fascination with Nazi Germany was odd, but I guess it's a power thing, right? Yeah. Apparently... Graham sported the Hitler mustache. Oh, really? (laughs) But that doesn't fully surprise me. Yeah, yeah, I guess it doesn't really. Just a bad look. Yeah. 
Now here is an interesting thing that I found. Okay. Graham was thrilled when a waxwork of himself was added to the Madame Tussauds Chamber of Horrors alongside his boyhood hero, Dr. Crippen. I'm assuming he doesn't have the Hitler mustache in his wax work. Not that I know of. I tried looking it up, but I didn't know what was real or not. Uh I just thought it was interesting that for some reason, ever since you talked about Madame Tussaud, (laughs) I've been seeing a lot of criminals in there. I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. Like promoting the criminals. Yeah. I don't like that. I understand the fascination, but yeah, I'm not sure I really like that. Yeah. So many other people they could do wax figures of. Good people. Yeah. If they're going to do wax figures of these people, I think they should have a museum, but have really bad wax figures of them where it's supposed to be them, but it looks nothing like them. (laughs) What would be the point of that? Just in spite of them. (laughs) Well, I guess if they were still alive to piss them off. Yeah. I mean, I've seen plenty of wax figures of celebrities that look nothing like them. Why not do it to the criminals? Yeah. Graham died in his cell on August 1st, 1990 at 42. The official cause of death was heart failure, although there was some speculation that the inmates that were always wary of him may have poisoned him or that he grew tired of prison life and poisoned himself in one final gesture of control. I could see the poisoning himself if he realized he wasn't getting out. Yeah. Interesting thought that the other inmates poisoned him. Yeah. Definitely odd that he died at such a young age if they said it was heart failure. I don't know about... Oh, I was going to say I don't know about back then, but that was 1990, so... Yeah. Yeah, that is... Bizarre. Imagine what he could have accomplished if he wasn't a psychopath with his knowledge. Oh, I thought you were talking about like what he could have accomplished as in like how many kills he could have had. No, no, no. Thinking about if he was a good person... Yeah. With his knowledge and his obsession with chemistry what he could have accomplished yeah for society it is interesting to think about that yeah i wonder how many of those are out there that end up going the psychopath route yeah when they're super intelligent yeah it's unfortunate and it's terrifying yeah sad yeah that is it for my story okay well I'm not sure how long we've been going, and I'm not sure how long my story is going to take, so maybe I'll just roll that over to next week. Okay. So we'll wrap it up. Very strange story. Very scary to think. Yeah. I'm not sure I'll ever let somebody prepare a drink for me ever again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And not eat out ever again. That's true. Thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night. Good night.